He has been teaching how to throw a touchdown pass, how to hit to the opposite field, but what he is teaching now is far more important, and you're going to hear all about it. We're going to hear from the legendary Coach Charles Flowers coming up on Faces of Faith. Stay tuned. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. And welcome in again, everyone. We're so happy to have you here on Faces of Faith, and I am looking across the studio at a longtime friend, uh, someone that uh, has been a big part of my life over the last probably 30 to 35 years or so, Coach Charles Flowers, and I, I still refer to you very fondly as Coach. Well, Coach is, a, is an honor to be called a coach, so uh, I'm going to accept that, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to be able to just be able to talk and talk freely about life and life in general and God has impacted me to do what I'm doing. Well, I will say, uh, as a matter of full disclosure, you coached my son in high school baseball back in the early 90s. Uh, one of the highlights of his life was the years that he spent under your tutelage there at Shaw High School. Uh, we'll get into your coaching career and how the Lord guided you in that direction. But one of the first things that I always try to do is uh, assume that a lot of folks out there do know you, but there are some who don't know you and uh, want to get to know you better, a lot of folks are going to see a Charles Flowers that they haven't been exposed to. Uh, they're accustomed to seeing you with a whistle around your neck and on the sidelines or uh, in the dugout. But in this uh, format and, and in this studio, we're going to get inside Coach Charles Flowers' heart and let you share from your heart today. So, first of all, take us uh, back uh, where you were born and raised, and let's talk about your early years. Well, I was born in uh, LaGrange, Georgia. Um, large family, attended Troop High School, lived out in the rural areas in Mountville, Georgia. One of the things about small towns is that everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. So you learn to respect people. You learn to work together. You learn to appreciate the small things in life. And you learn to understand that you may be financially poor but you can be very 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 spiritually rich mm. tell me about your parents and the influence that they had how you were introduced at a young age uh, when you were exposed to the gospel and and to the to, to the lord well it was my mother okay and uh, we didn't have a father that was in the house with us okay um it was one of those situations where it was 10 of us. So we had to learn how to work together. We had to learn how to love. And we had to learn to rely on people to help us out. And uh, Where were you in the pecking order? Uh, number, I was in the middle. Okay. I had four sisters older than me. Okay. And I had uh, four brothers younger than me. And I had a baby sister. So I was kind of thrust into a, a leadership role mm -hmm. at an early age. And I can remember very vividly walking to church, uh, to the community church, Mount Pleasant CME Church up on the hill. Mm -hmm. And my mother was one of those type of people. She was athletic, and she took care of us. She was one of those people that in her later years, she she really found the Lord. She, she began to pray more and everything, and... Uh, and she taught us that, you know, there was always a God. Mm -hmm. God was always there, and God was in the midst of everything that we do. <clears throat> so those values started at a very young age, Phil, understanding that if I wanted to be successful in life, that I was going to have to rely on God. And that faith that I learned at a very young age in, in Sunday school, mm -hmm. I mean, even at, at something like 15 years old, being the superintendent of Sunday school, and uh, just those things, and the preacher, Reverend Charles Miller, asking me to speak and, and read uh, the scriptures in church and stuff like that. So <clears throat> I guess people saw something in me that I didn't see in mm -hmm. myself. So I rebelled somewhat like most people do, but usually you really can't run away from who you really are. Mm -hmm. 
Tell me about your school years and where you went to school and the influence and impact that people that were teaching you and coaching you, what, what influence did they have on you? Back at True Pie School, the gentleman by the name of Billy Middlebrooks was my baseball coach. And uh, after that, American Legion Baseball, the gentleman who was the athletic director, Phil Williamson, uh, they understood that it was needed for to provide that parental support that you didn't have. So when you didn't have the father effect, those are the kind of guys that kind of took me under their wings and, mm -hmm. and saw something in me. And we could have very well gone a, a different way. So baseball began to be good for me and winding up, you know, going on and playing baseball and having a good time with that and, and going on to college. One particular gentleman, uh, by his name was Coach J.E. Hawkins. He was the athletic director there. And he recognized that I had certain leadership qualities and he said that, you know, you're missing something in your life. You're missing something in your life. You need to make sure that you keep God in everything that you do. But even as a little boy, Phil, playing baseball in the neighborhood and playing basketball, I was the one who always organized the teams. Okay. I started sports start becoming very real to me at that age. We organized teams, and, and it was so many of us. So in the community – the other guys would have to come and help us cut wood and sweep the yards and stuff like that in order for us to get through with everything we had to do in order for we could play. So our house became the, the grounds where most people came to play, and uh, we, we, we had some good times on those days. You knew uh, at a pretty young age that you had a knack for baseball? I, I knew. I, I can remember playing baseball with the older guys. 12 years old, playing baseball with the older guys in the community. And I would even, you know, walking four and five miles to practice, you know, didn't have any transportation, but I knew, and they saw something in me. And even my very first game as in organized baseball at, um, in Moreland, Georgia, I remember like it was yesterday, the very first time, I think I was 12, and I can remember like it was yesterday. And I had a home run, a single, and a double, and uh I knew that it was going to be something that I really, really in, enjoyed doing. But I found that I enjoyed coaching more than I did playing. And I would study the game. And, um, and I can remember this too, Phil. In my very first year of coaching baseball in West Point, Georgia, uh, I wanted the guys to hit like I hit. I wanted to swing like I swing. And I did a very good job of coaching them down. I said, and I went back, I said, we're not getting it done my way. So what do you want to do, guys? How do you want to swing? How do you want, do you want to cross over when you steal? Do you want to take a jab step? What do you want to do? Because I was formulating the foundation for my career then. So it's not so much about being what I want to do, what was comfortable to you. And that's when that building relationship part start to come into play mm -hmm. leaving them alone let them be them and then what modifying the minor things then i know you don't like to brag on yourself but take us through your career and i know that it ended uh prematurely uh, due to injury but uh, folks need to understand that you had a very strong um, background in baseball? I had a very strong <coughs> background in minor league baseball and in semi-pro baseball. And even it hurts now to know that when you get injured, it, it can, everything kind of comes to an abrupt end. Mm -hmm. But, you know, baseball was the foundation. I, mean, I enjoyed playing, and, I mean, it was something that was good for me. And uh, being the most valuable player on, on my team, being playing minor league baseball, you know, and then playing semi-pro after that. And even playing here in Columbus, Georgia, down there in Yupitoy and stuff like that. So I, I thought that, that I was pretty good at it. And even when I started the coaching, I enjoyed still going out to batting practice and playing with my guys and playing around with them. And, and I was loving that 
and it was still it was still getting ready. God was still working with me then. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we make things about us when it's really not. So had I went on to continue to play baseball, I would never have been able to develop some of the relationships that I have, especially with guys like your son, mm-hmm. like Scott. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of Scott in me as an early player when I would get upset when I didn't do well. Mm-hmm. Scott would beat himself to yes, death. He would. When he wouldn't do well, I said, you know, you can't take your glove out to the field and you can't take your, your glove to the plate with you either. I mean, you know, he did something to get you out now. You just can't go up there and get on base every time. <laughs> so <laughs> striking out is part, of, is part of the game and not getting on base. So I quickly began to analyze that mm-hmm. and say, you know, the key to me becoming a successful coach is going to be to understand that there are inherent differences that yeah. every player has, and every player has a different personality. So my job is to coach that personality because the ability is there. Mm-hmm. And if I can't tap into here to get you to understand that, then we're not going to be, what, successful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- those kind of things, that those are some great, 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 great members there. What brought you to Columbus Coaching? What brought me to Columbus Coaching – I was in West Point, Georgia, and the I was the head football coach and the head baseball coach. Okay. And the schools consolidated; they closed after four years after my fourth year there. And so I I had an opportunity to go to Troop High School as an assistant coach, but they told me that I could come, but they were not going to hire any of my assistants. I was loyal to my assistants, so therefore I did not. Okay. I did not come. So I went across town to LaGrange High School and as an assistant there one year. I was working on my master's degree at Troy University. Mm -hmm. What's the gentleman's name? He was the HR director, John Tucker. John Tucker convinced me to come to Shaw High School. And he said, you could do well there. So I had two opportunities. I could have gone 40 miles away and been the head baseball coach at Newnan High School, which had a great tradition, mm-hmm. or I could have come to Shaw High School as the baseball coach and worked with football who hadn't won anything since the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> so, And so I prayed about that, Phil. Mm-hmm. I prayed about it. I prayed about it, and I woke up and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to um, Columbus. A good friend of mine, I met him by the name of Alton Pitts. Yeah. And his son was playing Little League Baseball uh, in West Point, and I was working, you know, the recreation department during the summer. And he also convinced me that I needed to, that, that I would do good at, um, at Shaw High School. And Lord, lo and behold, <laughs> when I got there, I said, what have I gotten myself into? But the rest is history. What year was that? When did you come to Shaw? 1989, I believe. 1989 was my first year there. And at that time, the school was, we had a 0-37 and 37 losing streak in football. Mm-hmm. And it took us a couple of years before I got to be the head coach. We still won one. And I can, uh, I remember I felt, Relieved, but baseball we had some success. We had some good players, and um, Coach Bubba Ball had done a good job of a good foundation of baseball there. Mm-hmm. So baseball talent was there all the time. It was just a matter of cultivating it and getting the guys to believe in what we were doing, because a lot of the players that we had they they wanted to take BP, and that's all. They did fundamentals. I know how to play baseball. I said, you know how to play. I understand that. I know how to play too. But do you know how to play to win? So that that was that was, I mean, you would not believe some of the some of the stories in in, in football. I mean, I, I can remember said, Lord, what have I done? I mean, in, in a joking way, I wasn't. And, and when I got to be the head coach, Phil, I, it wasn't so much that I was concerned about winning. I was worried about surviving. Mm-hmm. Our guys were so physically weak. And they were, it was terrible. 
And I'd come in, you know, cocky and arrogant and everything. I had a rule in football. Because if anybody, if you miss a day of practice, you're not going to play. And at that time, we played Central Phoenix City. The first game of the year. I remember. Every year we had to go over there to play. So I can remember having to have coaches at the bus ramp to keep the players from getting on the bus to go home. They wanted no parts of Central <laughs> at all. And then I convinced them, you know what, we're going to change this thing around. We're going to start going. If we're going to play, it's going to be in a home and away deal. So we finally got it going. And, I mean, that was, that was, that was really, really good for us. Well, you had uh – Incredible success. I, I don't know of a coach. It may have happened, but in, in my memory, that has won, went on to coach their teams to the state football and baseball championship in the same season from 2000 to 2001. That, that was phenomenal. That was a phenomenal <laughs> feat to win the state championship in the – in the fall in football mm-hmm. with a phenomenal team, great group of guys and great coaching staff, and then to come back and win it in baseball in the spring as well. And I have to say that there were so many things that happened with both of those teams that I believe in fate. Mm-hmm. I believe in it, and I believe in it strongly. And there was just the game against um, Sandy Creek, just – us winning the game on penetration in the playoff to get to that point. And um, just the ball bouncing our way. Mm-hmm. And and in the state championship uh, against Columbus High School, that last game when we won, and they had runners on first and third. We had runners on uh, – they had runners on first and third. Mm-hmm. And it was one out. And John Brickman was my first baseman. And I said, I am going to gamble here. We're going to let the gentleman, we're going. if he wants to steal, let him steal. John, we're going to move you up. You're going to put, John looked at me like I was crazy. I said, John, move up. So John moved up, and Carlos Hughley moved up at third. And the very first pitch, they were stealing. Home. They, huh? Stealing home. Yeah. No, no, this particular part, the, it, it was one out, stealing second. Second, okay. Stealing second field. The very first pitch. The guy swung the bat, and John Brickman, a line drive to John Brickman. He catches the ball, steps on first base, the game is over. Had he been back, he never would have made that play. Okay. It would have been over his head, and we probably would have lost. So that's why I believe in faith. But I believe in faith more than faith because I've, I've always had that strong foundation that, that, that God was in the midst of everything that I did. I had so many opportunities to leave Shaw High School and to go to other places. Mm-hmm. But I knew at that particular time, that's where God wanted me to be. It was no doubt in my mind. And people saw me. They saw what they saw. They saw a coach. They didn't see an educator. They didn't see a man of God. They saw a coach because in football, the parents want you to play the best 10 in their son. <laughs> and in baseball, they want you to play the best That's eight in their son. son. Exactly. So they didn't care about that. So, but we had to we had to deal with that particular part. And so I would always talk about God, but not to the point where we would beat it over the young men's head. So I, the reason that I stayed was because I knew exactly where God wanted me to be, and everything that we were doing and had done to that before that time, it was preparing me for what God wanted me to do. You had an impact on so many um, young men's lives. I was reading an article when you were inducted into the Chattahoochee Valley Sports Hall of Fame in 2017. His name was uh, Damien? Daniels. Daniels, yes. Uh-huh. And, and he talked about years after, in fact, I think he was one of, 25 of your players at that time who was coaching somewhere in this area. So you were not only grooming young men to be successful on the field, but then in turn take a lot of the precepts and concepts that you had placed into their hearts under you, and then they turned around and were doing the same for other young people coming behind them. That's phenomenal. You know, I I think about it now, all the guys in there, I think it's up to about 40-something guys now. They played for me that's either coached or now administrators. And even um, 
even my own children. I mean, you know, to the point now, uh, Marjorie McNeil at, at Hardaway High School and Johnny Garner at Carver High School. And uh, just people, just the influence and know that you've had an impact on on them. And, you know, we talk and we have conversations now, and it's still that level of respect, mm -hmm. that level of respect. And I feel like it's part of a legacy. And I feel like if they can continue to do it and do it the right way in terms of building relationship, that's the key point, building relationship. And, and what I like the most about the, my two with Marjorie's and John is they have a still strong faith in God. Mm -hmm. They have a strong faith in God, and they believe in it. And they're teaching their players that. So guess what? They did the same exact thing that I did by bring, bringing my players to church. So when he was at Aaron Cone and when he was at Carver, he and Johnny Nat Carver, they bring the guys to church. And they let them see them in a different light. So you coach them hard on the field, mm -hmm. but you still have to understand that God is still in control of everything we do. So they can run away from it. But I feel like you're going to always come back home for you. I know part of uh, your strategy for inspiring uh, on the faith level, you would bring inspirational speakers in to, to do devotions with your players. That's always been important. You know, they can hear me say it, but for every football game, we would bring an inspirational speaker in to talk about faith, talk about religion, talk about Christianity, talking about believing in a higher calling believing that God is going to see you through. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was always very inspirational to, to me. I would listen and learn from them. And now the players are doing the same thing. So you got to find out, even the kid that you feel like never listening sometimes, they would always come back and they would remember something that you said. So I wanted my players to always have a foundation. Well, you know, what are you going to get from this? How are you going to apply it? And so, and I, and so I, I start instilling certain things, and I, and you can kind of take your notes as you go. But I wanted them. Number one, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to what God has to say to you. Number two, I want you to wait. I want you to wait on the Lord to tell you what He wants you to do. Number three, I want you to walk, walk in His ways. Then I want you to read His Word. Then I want you to remember it. Now I want you to speak it, and now I want you to apply it to your life. So if you listen, you wait, you walk, you read, you remember, you speak it, and you apply it, you can't go wrong. That sounds like a pretty good path for any of us to follow. It's a good path, and as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, even though I didn't profess it that much, and I still have things that I have to go by, and I call it my, my big six, Phil. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm so glad that I have a Savior that's above me that sends blessings down to me. That's my number one. My number two, I'm thankful that I have a God that's underneath me to serve as my foundation. Mm -hmm. Because if he's my foundation, then I'm really not concerned about the sinking sand that's all around me. I'm glad that I have a Savior that's in front of me to lead me. That's my number three. My number four, I'm glad that I have a Savior that's behind me to protect me. My number five is I have, I'm glad that I have a Savior that's beside me to comfort me. And my number six, I'm so glad that I have a Savior that's inside of me to strengthen me. And I try to live by that. And I try to teach my players that, my own children, anybody that I come in contact with. Uh, and when you're in sports, whether you're a player or a coach, you can be humbled very easily. The next game. The next game. And let me give an example of that, Phil. Okay. We, that same group of young men that we had in 2001, the state championship, we had almost every player coming back. Almost every player. We were primed to win another state championship. Mm -hmm. We had won 15 in a row the year before that. We had won 10 straight going into the game. So we're sitting on a 25-game winning streak in quad A football. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Those players became arrogant. They started getting in trouble in class. They started having discipline problems that we normally wouldn't have. So I was a firm believer that God is not going to reward that. Mm -hmm. We get into the playoffs. The first round, we're playing a number four seed, Crisp County out of Cordial, Georgia. We lose the ball game 14 to 13 in the rain. 
the last two minutes of that game, we had three opportunities to win the game. Damian Daniel and Troy Bergeron, both, we talk about it now, both of them dropped potential touchdown passes. Now, we hold them, we return the punt for about 65 yards for a touchdown, and it gets called back. Intervention. I mean, it's divine intervention. <laughs> and I believe that God was telling us, I am not going to reward bad behavior. And, you know, and Phil, and I can say this in honesty, at the end of that game, I was at peace. Mm-hmm. I was at peace because I knew that if we were supposed to win, we would have won. And so that was a humbling experience for a lot of those guys. We had coaches upset. I, wasn't, I was as calm as I'm sitting here right now. So I believe in that firmly. Just like the Facing the Giants movie from the Kendrick Brothers. You thank God when you win, you thank God when you lose. You better. <laughs> you better. Well, we have talked about um, your coaching career. Um, and at the beginning of this uh, podcast, I referenced uh, you've taught a lot of kids how to do things in football and in baseball. But your coaching career is not over. And – I believe now would be a good time to maybe share the story of your your grandson. You were oh, yes. reading to him about, was it Jonah? Jonah. And the big tell, fish. tell that story. You know, I was the athletic director at, at, at Point University and Christian School in West Point, Georgia. I had already retired, so it was not far from home. I enjoyed doing athletic director over football and baseball. And my grandson reading to him about Jonah and the big fish mm-hmm. on the steps um, in Alpharetta, Georgia. And <laughs> Junior, his name is Justin. His daddy plays professional football. And he said, Papa, why is he running away? It's a three-year-old kid now. And I kept reading. He said, Papa, you heard me. Why is he running away? And at that moment, all the Hall of Fame all the state championships, all the accolades meant absolutely nothing. I felt like all of that was leading me to what I'm doing right now. And I realized at that moment that I had been running away from my true calling of what God had planned for me to do. And for a three-year-old to bring that out and to reveal that to you, very powerful. So I came back home and I told my wife what we we're going to do. And I put my notice in that I was going to leave um, Point University and embark on this program that we have. Phil, it started out as a Christian curriculum. And we had to actually secularize it to get into the school. So we have a curriculum and a program where we work with students and parents, um, not only for students with at-risk behavior, but as a character education program to prevent them from what getting into trouble. And giving them a second chance, the same second chance that I got, the same second chance that you and other people got. Because we're supposed to live in a redemptive society. So if we're supposed to live in a redemptive society, it needs to be some kind of evidence. It needs to be some evidence to prove that. So if you're on, if you're on fire for teaching, if you're on fire for coaching, and if you're on fire for God, then somebody has to be getting burned. You agree? Amen. Someone has to be getting burned. Mm-hmm. So we started our program. And what even, year was that? Uh, it's, it's six years ago now. Okay. And, and when I tell you, even the, when you came and did the, the, the interview with the players on Saturday morning at Carver High School with the students and the parents, I mean, that was phenomenal because it shows that relationship because we lose that with our kids. They're on the go, we're on the go, so we lose that family connection. So what our program is, we, we bring the parent, the teacher, the child, everyone together to repair any harm that's being done through restorative practices and social-emotional learning. See, here's the thing, Phil. We teach math, we teach English, mm-hmm. we teach social studies. When the students cannot grasp those concepts, we remediate. But when they don't know how to behave, we suspend them. Something's wrong with that picture. And we decided that we were going to do something about it. My wife and myself, we started the program, and we have, right now we're contracted with schools in Macon, Georgia, and Albany, Columbus, some schools in DeKalb County, Phoenix City, Alabama, 
Uh, we're getting ready to go into uh, Bessemer, Alabama, and Griffin and different places. And hopefully, you know, it's going to keep going because people are understanding that we're, we're dealing with students right now that are hurting. We're dealing with students and parents who suffer through the pandemic. And sometimes it causes trauma and it causes mental diseases, anxiety, depression, and everything. So if we can fill that gap there, if we can fill that void by working with them and teaching them, then that's going to be a whole lot better than the alternative that's suspending them. See, because, Phil, I believe this. I believe that you can never punish your way to success. We have to always give students what a way, a way to what redeem themselves. The same exact way that God redeems us. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to give it back. So how does a program as, that you design and when you go in, like three or four years ago when I, when I went out to the Saturday morning session at Carver High School, and what I observed was um, not just the students, and these are students that having some difficulty in school, having some difficulty with discipline, behavior, what have you. It wasn't bringing them in on a Saturday morning, but their parents were there as well, and it became a um, – a team effort, if you will, between the school, the parents, and the students to address and and actually begin a better communication process, would you say? Absolutely. Dr. Lewis and the Muskogee County School District has always been supportive of everything that we did. He said, Charles, you have a great program, but you don't have any data. He said, if you get the data that we need, then we'll fund the program. And he's a man of his word. He and, uh, I mean, they have done a tremendous job of supporting us. So you bring the parent in, you bring the child in, and you start dealing with these. We have our own curriculum that deals with advocacy, responsibility, integrity, code of conduct. So we're able to hit some of these things off before they get started. But also, if the child has committed an offense, in lieu of the traditional suspension, the parent and the child can come in and go through those sessions and get those suspension days either erased or reduced. So if you come in and that parent comes in and the child comes in, and if it's something not egregious, then we go through the intervention, and now everything works out because that level of accountability increases. So now we're not just putting them out there in the street for one offense that they make. And so now what does that do, Phil? The more, the, the more time you're in school, you're going to be more academically elevated. And now you, you're giving them a chance to speak. And that's the problem. We don't let our children speak enough. So when that parent has to listen to that child and the child has to listen to the parent, never there will be any talking together. And when I tell you it builds relationships and it mends them. And uh, man, I was old school. You know that better than anybody. Yeah. It, was the, you know, it was the fifth gospel. The Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Gospel according to Charles Flowers. <laughs> so, so I had to get away from that. And when that mindset changed, I said, "This thing is, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing." So, what, what uh, you mentioned, um, Doctor Lewis? What data do you have that's showing that this is working? Oh, that's simple. You, you go in, you take the number of days that students have been suspended. You take the number of office disciplinary referrals. You look at the academics of those particular students or in general. And after going through the curriculum, you find that it's going to decrease the number of days that lost. So now your instruction days are gained. Mm-hmm. And so when you compare that data from one year to the next, then, and I'm going to use George Washington Carver High School for an example. Okay. Instituted the program, and the attendance rate is up. Academics is up. They're performing at a very high rate. You don't see the students getting suspended for the traditional things because the teachers, a lot of the teachers that went through the training, uh, they went from closing the door in your face because you're 30 seconds late to standing at the door what welcome you on in. So now that relationship is built. And now let me tell you why I feel, because students learn from teachers that they like mm-hmm. and players play for coaches that they like. Right. And I used to always say you can pay them to perform, but you cannot pay them to excel. 
they're going to excel because it's something about you as a teacher or as a coach that they like. And they don't want to disappoint you. Yes. And so when you build those relationships, you see the culture and the climate of the school, what? Change tremendously. So now you go from what? Being so punitive to doing things what with you. Sit down and shut up, Phil. Phil, will you please sit down so we can learn? Can I please get you to sit down? It's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Because if I sit, say, shut up, Phil, and sit down, Phil's feeling some kind of way now. He's going to retaliate. You sit down. Mm-hmm. So now you, what you just, just that effective language, it makes a big, big difference. This program has uh, evolved and grown from the three or four years ago when we went to Carver and, and to now. Uh, explain how the growth is not only in schools, but recently, in fact, I did a story about uh, the instructional session that you had with the Columbus Police Force. That, that training was phenomenal. Chief Blackman contacted me about doing restorative practices. And what restorative practices is, is you're getting away from the traditional punishment and you're working on building relationships, community relationships. And we talked about it. You know, sometimes you have to arrest juveniles, but you don't have to dehumanize them in the process. And if I can build a relationship with you, and if I can get you and your parents together to try to resolve the issue, that's a lot better than incarceration. So now you get away from the traditional mode, and if you teach the restorative practices to the officers, now they can come in and what train other officers, and now when you go out in the community, they don't see you as being an enemy. They see you now as being an ally. And, and you don't even, and like I was telling uh, one of the other gentlemen who did, really didn't want to do it, I said, but there's nobody in this room that's not been given a second chance. I said, we have to make sure that we understand that there are certain things that bad cops, they're bad teachers, they're bad coaches that do bad. It doesn't reflect who everybody is. Mm-hmm. So here is an opportunity to what? To build some damaged relationships through restorative practices. So now that accountability goes both ways. And so that was phenomenal. But Phil, if you go back even further than that, you still absolutely have to believe that God is in the midst of everything that you do. Because if you don't feel like that you need to make a change, then you're not going to make it. So it's another way for me to to be an ambassador for God's word. It's a good way for me to take on that foundation that I did as a young boy in the church, walking the church and, and praying all the time and fasting all the time and not even knowing what I was doing, not even knowing, reading my Bible all through college, reading it like I do daily, and now in this understanding that I have to sacrifice something and understanding that I have a greater calling. And, and, and in doing that, you know, three or four halls of fame, four, whatever I'm in, I got one more to go. I need to... Get prepared to get into God's Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Have a great support system, wife, children, coaches, and and we understand. We understand that what we're doing is for somebody else. And I like to say this, Phil: we want to plant the seed that we may never see grow. Mm-hmm. What uh, would you say that? How has the Lord shown you? in your lifetime as a coach and, and now as sort of a life coach, that what you're doing is, is making a difference and changing people's lives. The, the, the idea of the story, when parents come back and, and tell you, and I'm going to give an example, um, Elijah Pritchett, uh, the lineman at Carver High School, one of the top linemen in the nation, the nation. Mm-hmm. They're in our program at Carver High School. And, um, it's, it's very inspiring. Uh, his mother said all through middle school that he never, ever made all A's and B's. And he always had at least one or two F's. And she said it in, in, a, in a recording that the mentorship program, what the coaches are giving them, what our program is giving them, and to other girls and stuff, it's just phenomenal because it's changing lives. And what makes us know is that my wife has her own group it's called Flourishing Ladies of the World where she's working with girls, mm-hmm. girls and their issues and helping them to get ahead and understanding that 
You know, you can be successful in your own way. So that's when I know that we're doing it God's way because when people are calling us and they're thanking us for making a difference not only in their life but in their children's lives. And when you understand that the, the Office of Crime Prevention that supports us and gives us the autonomy to work with different students and their families as well. So it's a citywide thing, and we've gone from here to other states, and we feel like we're going to get even, I think God's going to bless us even more in everything that we're doing because, you know, as the Bible tells us, he is divine. We're just the branches. And what we want to do, Phil, in our own way, we want to continue to produce godly fruit. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I ask for most everyone that comes on my podcast are, um, who are your faith heroes in your life? Who has played that role of of being your spiritual mentor, and how have they influenced you? I don't know if I've had such a a, a spiritual mentor in in terms of a person. I can't really say that. That, that I have in that respect mm-hmm. because I'm an, I'm an avid reader. Mm-hmm. I like to read and I like to, to talk, obviously. <laughs> I like to speak and I like to research. And, um, and in terms of the studying the Bible and, and inspirational leaders, um, I like to see people, and I, I go back to the, and I didn't even know him as a person, but I relate a lot of my stuff to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had to say a person, even though I didn't know him, mm-hmm. but as reading his writings and some of the things that he said and just relating back during that time and understanding the struggles that and the trials and tribulations they had to go through. And I look back to my mother being the, the woman who she was mm-hmm. to raise all of us and, and to teach us the importance of being together and loving each other and, and understanding that, you know, we have each other, we're going to be okay. So uh, I would be lying to you if I said I had a spiritual leader per se. Uh, I guess I've been kind of a radical all my life, so I may change up here and there. <laughs> <laughs> if you had an opportunity to stand before um, uh, a group of coaches, uh, young men and women who uh, their chosen profession, the way that the road they're headed down is they're going to be influencing young men and women who are going to be playing for them. Um, you obviously have success in, in that career. What would be the, the key elements that are the keys that you would like to verbally pass to them that's going to make them make the most difference in those kids' lives? I think the first one would be to absolutely keep put God first. Absolutely put God first in everything that you do. I mean, the second thing is, is that the parents are sending us the very best that they have. Mm-hmm. And we should be sending them back a better product. The third thing I would pass on to them is that we don't care who gets the credit as long as the team gets to win. The team, building that team concept. Another key that I would leave with them, Phil, is do not sacrifice your family for your team. Wow, that's huge. Don't sacrifice your family for your team. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going a little bit further, that these keys, and these keys is, is, is a simple little quote that if we're working with coaches and we're working with kids, we have to have a different mindset. We got to put the work in. We have to work. We cannot look at the clock. So I like to say you cannot have a million-dollar mindset with a minimum wage work ethic. <laughs> you, if you want a million-dollar mindset, then you have to work for that. And at the end of the day, the last one, I would ask them, everybody, you, that gentleman right here, and everybody on the Dillon, everybody that's listening, that's going to listen, everybody, everybody who's ever went to school have at least one teacher that they can remember that positively influenced them. Mm-hmm. At least some of them have a lot more than that, Phil. But everyone has at least one. So my last key to them would be, are you going to be that coach that that child says influenced and impacted them? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be able to say, it? will that student athlete, mm-hmm. 
will they be able to say the same thing about you that you just said about that teacher or that coach? And if not, then you are someone with a clipboard and a stopwatch and a whistle, and you should give back the name coach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are some coaches that should go to school on those important keys that you just passed along. As part of your faith walk and and walk with the Lord, um, we can look at times and look back over our lives. I'm almost 70 years old now. Um, but I can look back on my life, and, and I know specific times when, beyond a shadow of a doubt, God came to my rescue. God intervened in a crisis. He answered a prayer. Um, he made himself known personally t- to me in a, in, in a crisis. What would be some of those moments that, that you would care to share f- with us? I think one of them is at a very early age, trying to understand why we were poor, trying to understand why you don't have that fatherly support, trying to understand that um, it's not fair. But I can remember very vividly around 12 or 13 when it was revealed to me that God had a plan for me, and it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do that he was going to do great things through me. There is no doubt in my mind. The second thing is, another very important point in my life was when um, at the situation that I had at Troop High School when I came back. And the first time I'd ever been terminated from a position. I was retired, and um, it was a recruiting allegation, uh, which was later found to be completely false. Dr. Ralph Swearingen, the Georgia High School Association, put a put a damper on that. He said, no, that is not recruiting. So at that time, that was a very low point in my life. I said, you know, um, I still have some coaching in me. So I humbled myself, and I went to Smith Station to work with ninth grade football. It was embarrassment at times from, for getting terminated for for something that you didn't do. And I had to really rely on that faith in God mm-hmm. to get me through that thing. I had anger. <clears throat> I was humiliated. I was depressed. Um, but having a loving wife to support you and family to support you, we didn't lose anything we actually gained. So, in essence, I actually thank those people. I thank them for what they did to me because it made me stronger. You know, and I like to use this. They thought they were eliminating me, but in actuality, they were elevating me. So had I stayed there, we probably would have won a state championship in football. But I never would have got a chance to do what we're doing right now. So that is another time when I knew that, God, you got to get me through this because I cannot do it on my own, and I'm not going to try to do it on my own. And I've always fasted and prayed on things, and and it got to be really real with me then, that I have to have a stronger connection with God. And sometimes as coaches feel we can become arrogant. We can become arrogant. We We can think that we have all the answers and we have the best of everything. Not only as coaches, but in life in general. So, and um, I like to say God has this way of humbling us down. Mm-hmm. So that was a humbling experience, but at the same time, it strengthened me. You can kind of relate that to Samson. Samson strayed away from what God had planned for him to do. He did everything on his own. Uh, Samson kept God's gift a secret while expressing how strong and great he was. Mm-hmm. so All about him. All about him. Mm-hmm. So guess, so, and I said this in church one time, the strongest man who ever lived in the weakest moments of his life while he was blinded clearly saw what God wanted him to do. The strongest man that ever lived had to ask God for strength as he pushed the pillars down to kill the Philistine. 
And at his blind, even in his physical blindness, he was able to see what God wanted him to do. Mm-hmm. And so that humbling experience there kind of led me to what God really wanted me to do. And if I have to humble you by doing, by allowing this to take place, then that's what I'm going to do. So that's another indication of, of, of strong faith. And when people are calling you and telling you, you know, we want your program, we like what you're doing, how can you help us, this, that, and the other, so that lets us know that we're going, um, that we're going in the right direction. So it's been other defining moments, but I think those two mm-hmm. probably stand out more than anything. You are a grandparent. You've been a coach, a parent. When you get to be a grandparent, I mean, that that that's a, a high calling. Oh, man. And as you look at, how many grandkids you have? Eight and one on the way. As you look into the faces of those eight grandkids, what are you going to reveal to them faith-wise that's going to stay with them long after Papa's gone? Well, let me tell you something. The good thing about it is having children who are godly and that are teaching Mm -hmm. their children Mm -hmm. the godly way by sending them to grace um, by sending them to Calvary Christian, mm-hmm. by sending them to Emmanuel Prep, by sending them to Greater Atlanta Christian. They're all involved in Christian schools right now and having strong parents that believe that mm-hmm. and that don't see it as a sacrifice. But what Papa wants to live with, leave with them is that listen to your parents. Keep God first in your life. Give him credit for everything. And knowing that Papa's going to be here, he's going to be there to support you, he's going to love you, and that you absolutely have to stay grounded and rooted in the Lord. There's nothing better than to see those grandchildren talk about God, saying their blessings before they eat. I mean, saying Mm -hmm. their prayers. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you what my little grandson Justin told me. And my other little grandson Connor, both of them are tremendous athletes, but Justin told me, a couple of weeks ago, he said, and I asked him, what do you want to do when you, when you grow up? He says that I want to be an attorney. I want to play pro football. And when I retire, I want to be a preacher. How old is he? Nine. <laughs> and Connor is six. And Connor wants to play sports and he wants to preach it. I mean, they enjoy it. And that's, genetic from their parents mm-hmm. as well as what they've been taught. And and I want them to understand that even when we have to discipline them, it's not what we're doing to them, it's what we're doing for them. I want them to see godly grandparents. I want to see them seeing grandparents that live and walk mm-hmm. rather than just telling them about it. Well, you have been an inspiration uh, to me and my family. I know uh, Scott coming through your baseball program and what you instilled in him and what you took the time to learn about him. It wasn't just teaching him the game of baseball, but trying to realize his personality wouldn't take a kick in the pants that he needed, you know, to be pulled to the side and whispered in his ear. Um, And, you know, that was a... um, a very special four years that he spent coming through the the Shaw baseball program under your tutelage. And that was important to me because sometimes when you are gifted as an athlete, you miss those other things. You miss the sensitivity. You miss the building relationship part. Mm -hmm. But even then, getting them to play for you and excel, they're doing it because they want to do it for you. And I found out very quickly with guys like Scott, you don't yell at him. You don't talk to him in front of everybody. You pull him to the side, you talk to him, and you can say anything you want to, Sunday school words or anything else. But when you do it that way, then they'll respond and they'll accept that. Mm -hmm. And the key to coaching is understand players' personalities. And when you do that, and I've had some guys who you had to do the worst. You had to give it to them that mm-hmm. way because that's the only language that they understand. Mm-hmm. But that relationship, he helped me. 
And I can look back, a lot of my years, a lot of my players, they actually helped me to grow as a person. And when I see it now from coaches, I, I can usually tell who's going to win by the way they carry themselves and the way they talk to their players. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's amazing that you said that because uh, I know uh, his daughter is at Mercer now. Yes. She's at Mercer. Alyssa, Alyssa mm-hmm. she's at Mercer now. And now he's coaching. And he has his kids at Calvary, and so mm-hmm. they're all falling. They're, they're all doing some phenomenal things, and so that's rewarding to see that. Well, I can say that I'm sure that a lot of what Scott is using and his skills and tactics with his uh, middle school baseball team, uh, he's an, an assistant coach with the team, but I know, I mean, I, I'm not on the field to observe it, but I know in my heart that what he is pouring into those kids came straight from your mouth and your heart into him. Well, I appreciate that. And one of the parents, one of the parents, uh, she actually went to Shell too. And her, I think her son plays on that team. And she was telling him, well, he needs to do this and he needs to do that. And I said, I'm not going to call her name. I said, you need to let him coach. <laughs> you need to let him be the very best he can be because he may need to get that at home from you. But Scott Scoggin needs to coach the way that he feels going to best communicate and get the point across to his players. And I told her, I said, what kind of car do you drive? She told me the car she drives. I said, well, I drive a truck sometimes. I drive an SUV. I said, why do we not have the same one? She said, because we like different things. I said, my point exactly. Mm-hmm. And she said, I got you, Coach. And then she <laughs> well, uh, we've we're Coming up on the end of this uh, one-hour conversation, it has flown by, but um, it's good to just be able to uh, sort of uh, pull back the curtain and spend time looking into the heart of Coach Flowers, the one who uh, most people, you know, haven't seen or heard this side of you. Some have, but the majority, it's, it's been on the sidelines or, or on the baseball field. But thanks for um, letting the Lord use you to say some things that I feel like if people have listened over the last hour, uh, that's been a blessing to their heart. Well, I am glad, and anytime there's an opportunity to share, I don't want it to be about me, but I want it to be about any person that's been afraid to do something for the first time. It was difficult to me. You know better than anybody, this, was, this is it. This is the way it's going to be. I don't care. This is, this, is the, this is the medicine that you're going to get as a result of. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if we can just get people to understand to be the very best person that they can be, I like to say this, Phil, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> and so we just be ourselves and understand that God has a plan for all of us and he's going to work through us. Mm-hmm. And if we just stay true to that, and, and it's all about those relationships. Always has been with you. It's important, and, and if after all these years, it's great to, it's an honor for me to call you friend. Amen. It's an honor. I mean, we got inducted into the Hall of Fame at the same time. We've shared stories over the years when you were sports direct caster and everything, and, and just your professionalism, and just seeing people as they are. And Phil, you know, we're living in such a crazy society now, and where people get so hung up on a lot of different things. But I can honestly and truly say that in your heart, as a person, there is no doubt in my mind from the day I met you that you were a godly person and that you've never seen color, you've never seen race, you saw people. And it was as genuine then as it is right now. And, and I think some of us need to understand that, that we have to respect people for who they are, but at the same time, understand that we still live in this world together and we absolutely must do the very best that we can to peacefully coexist. And you can disagree, mm-hmm. but who we are inside is going to eventually. There are a lot of Charles Flowers out there who got little Jonas inside of them too mm-hmm. that's running away from God's calling. Yeah. But guess, guess what? It is going to catch up with them the same way it did with me. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that you invited me to be on with this, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to another opportunity. You bet. Coach, thank you. Friend, uh, coach, uh, teacher, uh, So you've filled so many roles in, in the lives of so many in this community. 
We thank you for who you are and what you've passed along to the next generation and continue to do that uh, after uh, having your Jonah moment. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Coach. And again, we thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks to Dylan Hansen. He is our director of this podcast, and we appreciate all of his efforts to make it what it is today. Uh, Thanks so much, Dylan. And as always, at this time of the podcast, we always say that whatever you're going through, always remember, keep the faith. Thanks for joining us.